Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams, joined today by a very special guest. Very excited to be having this chat. Uh, it's Spencer Casimir. Spencer, long-time listeners may have heard his presentation at the Tom Brock conference a couple of years ago, but he's making his big show debut uh, in this episode, and we've we got a lot to discuss. But firstly, Spencer, thanks for joining me. No, thanks for having me. Uh, it's great to be live. And listeners will already notice something a bit different about Spencer's voice. I know off air we've we've had a discussion about a, a frustration you feel at times having to constantly prove yourself as a rugby league fan and an American, but I'm going to annoy you and get you to do that anyway right at the start. So can you just tell us a bit about how you came to rugby league? Absolutely. No, it's a, it's an interesting line that I actually have to walk because um, there's something to be said about being passionate and excited about rugby league with a not just an American, but a North American or a, an accent outside of uh, what's it called the northeast side of the Barassi line or uh, the M62 for that matter. Uh, no respect to uh, disrespect to Toulouse or Catalan for that matter. But um, one of the uh, advantages is people do get excited to hear um, a non-traditional rugby league accent passionate about the sport, but it also comes with the baggage and the assumption that the person is just newly excited, just found out about it, um, and doesn't necessarily uh, have that much depth of knowledge into the sport, into the industry. Um, on the other side of the coin, um, I am working uh, nonstop on the research, um, which does include the the Tom Brock uh, from a few years ago. Um, and there's, there's always the risk of going too deep into the academic side of things, or the, at least I would call it the perceived, uh, ivory tower that has no practical application in the actual game itself today and how it operates on the field and off the field. So at, at one end it's by perception, here's this guy who just has an accent who must've just found out about rugby league. And on the other end, it's, yeah, this guy is a bit too far down the rabbit hole to have a chat with. Um, um, as far as how I actually got involved and even more importantly, first exposed to rugby league was, uh, as a 16 year old, I was tuned into late night TV. Um, it's funny the the details you remember about certain things. It was a Thursday night and it was around 11 o'clock and I was flipping through channels. Um, and I saw this medley of sports that I had never seen before. Um, the three sports were rugby league, rugby union, and Aussie rules. Um, though they did also show uh, Gaelic football as well on the um, on the program, and it most was mostly highlights. But you, they also had a game of the week. Um, so I remember very distinctly uh, about rugby league, remembering uh, how easy it was to use my prerequisite 
I guess what you'd call a prerequisite or at least parallel knowledge with the American gridiron and say, oh, so they have, you know, six tackles. Okay, we have four downs. And obviously this is way before I did the research. And this is 16-year-old Spencer thinking to himself, okay, I get it. Okay, they have to back up, okay, 10 meters. Okay, that's a little bit more than 10 yards. Okay, that's fine. I think I can run with this. Um, and I just became absolutely enamored by the sport. Um, there's not a lot of rugby league, or at least in those days, I should say, there were not a lot of rugby league playing opportunities. Uh, obviously, there, it's growing. It still is growing. Uh, and it you know, has the potential to grow much more. Um, but it's still mostly rugby union when you're talking about football codes off the gridiron, um, aside from soccer. Um, so I ended up playing rugby union, but following rugby league, rugby union, and even Aussie rules for a bit. So um, with, and when I say for a bit, I mean a bit by myself with nobody else interested, because mm-hmm. who else, who, who else was going to be willing to come over at 11 o'clock at night on a Thursday or get permission from their parents to do so um, <laughs> when you're 16, uh, just to watch some sports that nobody's ever heard of in back in New York. Um, and little by little, obviously that community grew, uh, in terms of people that I knew that liked the game that, uh, became aware of the game. And I remember through even playing rugby union as a scrum half, as a you know dummy half, um, that people didn't have a real understanding of rugby league in the U S but when they heard that there are leagues and teams that do play rugby league, um, that they would say, these guys are crazy. You know, rugby union is tough or but, but I could never do that. But there was never really a good understanding or a good foundation of understanding as to why that was the thought. But, I mean, you go far enough back. I mean, I have a, uh, an original edition of a Sports Illustrated from the 1960s in which they're comparing the straight-on kicking style of the NFL with the square toe. And they had Lynn Colleen, actually, who was playing for St. Helens, um, also take an attempt at kicking – uh, the American football. They, they they had a guy from the Eagles and a guy from the Buffalo Bills, which was meaningful at the time because the AFL NFL merger, I believe, had not happened. It was still in discussions. Mm. Uh, so that so the Eagles being NFL and the Buffalo Bills being AFL, they brought one from each. They brought in uh, Len Colleen and they brought in uh, Bobby Charlton from uh, from soccer as well. And they compared to see if this soccer style of kicking was going to replace. The straight on kicking. Now, this is before the Gogolak brothers came in and showed that it was actually in a very effective style. But this was also at a time before the hash marks and the um, the tick marks um, were narrowed from what is still the college width to the NFL width, which is in line with the um, with the goalposts. So there's a lot of moving pieces here. Um, it's not too dissimilar if you read Gavin Wilsey's book um, about the American Rugby League All Stars, how from a contemporary perspective, it seems hard to imagine that somebody from the gridiron that's only played on one side of the ball since college, since university, would be able to transition to be able to do both attack and defense. Um, but back then, a lot of these guys were playing both sides of the ball um, because the game hadn't really fully switched or had just recently switched to what we call the platoon system. Um, so they did have the abilities to play both sides of the ball. They had no rugby league experience. They you know, were billed as the rugby league all-stars. They toured Australia, um, but they had no rugby league experience. However, the requisite skills of being able to play both sides of the ball, to use the gridiron term, uh, were actually still intact back in those days, despite the fact that the four-tackle rule wouldn't be introduced until over a decade later in 1966, and obviously that parlayed into a, um, a six-tackle rule in 72. Um, part of my research 
discusses the similarity that uh, when we stopped contesting the ball in both American and Canadian gridiron, and for those listeners that aren't aware, they aren't, they're not the same. They're actually different codes, though there are a lot of overlapping similarities. Um, both had three downs, and it wasn't until later that the NFL added a fourth down. Um, uh, the, the reason for being was, was safety reasons as opposed to uh, what many administrators, and I believe including Bill Fallifield, amongst others, uh, saw as a, um, a flaw with the current four-tackle structure where the game was a bit too frantic. There wasn't an, allowed to be enough development of tactics. Um, but, th- but that transition in American football was from 1879-1880 uh, when they stopped contesting the scrimmage um, and brought in limited tackles within um, – two to three years in 1882. On the other hand, well, we know since 1906, it took uh, until 1966 to implement limited tackles into rugby league. So there are actually a lot of parallels in terms of the evolution of the game. And uh, Tony Collins has brought this up uh, ad, in, uh, ad infinitum, um, or ad, ad infinitum, depending on how you want to pronounce it, um, that every football code does have uh, the challenge of deciding what to do when the ball goes dead. I mean, we call it the touchline in rugby league um, because historically, whoever, whichever team grounded the ball or got to the ball and touched it down, even on those sidelines and you know the touchlines, that was the team that would regain possession. Now we haven't done that, you know, since I believe the 1800s. But it's a bit of you know, in terms of vocabulary, it's a bit of a vestigial organ. So we're all trying to figure out what to do when the ball goes down, and it just so happens that both, well, all three American, Canadian, gridiron, as well as rugby league, decided to introduce the limited tackle slash downs system, albeit so, uh, decades uh, apart. So I'm interested to know like how much that, you know, appreciation of rugby league led to you actually coming to Australia. Like, you know, why are you here? How did that happen? Well, I think actually when you introduced the uh, lecture I gave a few years ago, uh, I want to say when was that, 2019, uh, you summed it up quite nicely. I have two things against me, uh, firstly, being American and secondly, uh, living in Melbourne. <laughs> so um, I've been here in Australia for five years, but I've been coming out here for about 11 now. So <laughs> it, 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 this is my backyard. <laughs> it's, again, there, there are far more AFL teams geographically surrounding me. Um, but again, we got stormed just down the road and, uh, you know, lockdowns permitting travel permitting, uh, I do come up to Sydney for, uh, more than one or two games. I think my fondest memory before I moved out here was actually attending the South's game at Cronulla. And, uh, I'm sure you uh, will remember this. This was the one where it rained so hard. Oh. All these guys showed up in the scuba suits yeah. and snorkel masks. Now, I was not living in Australia at the time, but I'd be damned if I missed the only NRL game scheduled to fit my schedule on that trip. Yeah. And I sat there, soaked to the bone, in the <laughs> rain, and enjoyed every minute of, it, minute of it, though I could not see the players very well once they got past maybe 40 meters. Um, everything was just a blur at that point, but it was good fun. Yeah. That like probably nicely gets us to to the second part of my opening question, is, which was to get you to explain your academic uh, background a bit and and the focus of your research. But can you just before we move on to the main topic at hand, give me the elevator pitch for your PhD and what you're working on? How about the uh, clickbait, the Americanization of sport, and with a big capital Z in the middle. <laughs> 
But really what that looks at is aspects in which rugby league and sport in Australia and around the world have made a shift, again, not completely, but a shift in their point of focus for influence from an Anglo-centric, Eurocentric model uh, to that of the North American model. I mean, a, a very superficial quick uh, example is um, the concept of attrition-based attack. If you look at soccer, association football, and rugby union, a big part of those games is using your possession of the ball as a tool for attrition to wear down the opposition. And that's very true of test cricket as well, because if you compare it, and I've written an article about this on the Roar, um, baseball to the test format of cricket, they're polar opposites, actually. I think I can name the article um, Cousins Not Brothers, um, mainly because the main goal of a batter in baseball is to get on base. Well, it's it's to get a, get a run, really. But you only get on base less than 30%, uh, 30, uh, sorry, less than 33% of the time, less than a third of the, of the time. So if you're batting 300, you're doing great, but that doesn't actually earn you a run. And in cricket, um, it's the opposite because the chances of getting on base are so low and you have to run. Um, that means that the value of a run is extremely high, but the value of an out is very low. And in test cricket, because you have the choice as a batsman, as a batter, to run when you choose, not necessarily when the ball goes into play, that means that the economic opposite exists in the test format. And as you get to your one day, your 2020, and your hundreds now uh, in shorter formats, that those economics get closer where in the test format, the value of your outs is tremendous, but the value of a run is very small. And that means as a batsman, you can wear down the bowler as a form of attrition when you're the one on attack. And that's a very Anglo-centric, a very traditional Eurocentric model of on-field sports tactics. Whereas in North America, what we see more frequently, and let's leave ice hockey out because the speed at which the puck goes, the smaller size of the rink compared to fields, um, kind of throws a spanner in the works, if you would, for uh, this theory. But otherwise, we see shot clocks, downs, uh, limited ways to limit the ability for the team with the ball to have unrestricted possession, but for messing up. And we do see that shift, again, going to rugby league specifically in 66 when the unlimited tackle format was abolished in favor of the four tackle rule, which is now six tackles, except when you get a zero tackle. Um, but there's this progression enforcing what I call a use it or lose it ultimatum on the team handling the ball, in the, the team in the position of scoring, I should say, um, and a move away from this attrition-based attack that we see more traditionally in um, continental European and English sport. So I, I think you've you've pretty much summed up the reason I wanted to to get you here that kind of analysis because I really wanted to have this talk in terms of the Super League war because Americanization was a theme that was used, at, you know, for various agendas and angles by by both sides during the war, and it was something that has and continues to have effect on the game but it's always talked about in cultural terms whereas i think what your research brings is the idea that it's not just the cheerleaders it's how the game is actually played 
on field as well. But I wanted to start with the cultural aspect of it because I, I think there is still ways of exploring this topic that, that goes beyond the cliches. And, and I'm really interested to get your perspective on some of this. So to start off with, I, I just wanted to ask a general question about now before we get to the specifics of the Super League war in the 1990s. But it's still, to this day, a, a very enticing presentation of sport that, that Americans do. And sporting leagues in Australia and elsewhere continue to, to ape that in various ways and try to bring in you know some of those best aspects in terms of how sport is presented in America. So can you just talk about that presentation and why you think it is so enticing to sporting bodies around the world? No, absolutely. And that's a fair point. Um, there are the cheerleaders, there are the stadium MCs, there is integrated music as when the teams are not playing. Um, there, there's a whole slew of things um, that actually have changed the landscape um, in terms of interna- sport outside of North America based on, again, that model. Um, and I think that the U.S. was definitely... Um, in many ways, uh, not just in the 90s sense for the world, uh, really the first group to shift from viewing itself as sport and more towards entertainment, which is why we call it the sports entertainment industry. Uh, You can argue that a lot of that may have, and this is just me shooting from the lip, it could have come from professional wrestling. Um, Mm. There is reason to believe that um, and I don't mean just the, the golden era, if you would, or um, even the, you know, the 80s and 90s with Hulk Hogan and uh, Andre the Giant. Um, but back to the earliest days of wrestling, the question was, how do we make this an entertaining product? Um, Gorgeous George, back in the day, used to accept everything as being part, you know, scripted. And he was happy for that, except for the pin. So the idea of the soap opera, the story, the good versus evil... Um, that was the tactic that professional wrestling decided to take. Now, obviously, the matches are entirely scripted now, where the pin is also determined. And there's a lot of questions as to whether uh, Gorgeous George was or was not actually forced to take a pin um, that he wasn't supposed to take. And uh, there's, a, there's a word called kayfabe, um, which is a, I'm not even going to define because it's a completely different conversation. But... You could argue that professional wrestling was one way in which Americans had already begun to see entertainment and sports fusing into one identity. Um, But professionalism in American sport also started much earlier. Uh, People tend to forget that um, soccer in England back in the 1880s, when they professionalized in 1885, looked at the National League for baseball. Because baseball had always been paying its players. Um, well, no, I shouldn't say always, that's a <laughs> academically dangerous, uh, statement, but baseball was uh, probably the most prolific earliest adopter of professional player payment. Um, and when soccer mimicked that, obviously rugby union did not take kindly to the results, which was that, um, the social and economic elite not only had to meet quote unquote, those people on the pitch, they were getting beat by those people on the pitch. Um, and they saw it happen in soccer and which is, you know, the beginning of the, you know, anti-professionalism, the anti-everything of rugby union. So 
um, and which does lead to obviously 1895 with the, the split in rugby league. Um, so I wouldn't say that this necessarily started in Super League or it started in the 1980s of professional wrestling or even earlier than that, but there was already an acceptance in North America towards professionalism. And that part of professionalism uh, was entertainment because who pays the bills? Especially in those days, the fans. Um, mm. So what better way than to create a, an all-encompassing form of entertainment built around the game? It's, you know, one could argue there are elements shared with a religious procession that lead up to the main event, if you would. Um, but again, this is, uh, that, that's more uh, <laughs> a chat for another time, yeah. um, because that's its own, um, that's its own, uh, research, which we actually see in businesses, you know, the idea that, um, buying into a business as a consumer should be a ritual and ritual in the, ter- in terms of marketing and advertising is a, a fairly sacred word. Can you make the product part of someone's ritual? Not routine, not their everyday, whatever their ritual. Um, and I think that's what probably created a lot of allure around the world towards that U.S. model. You look at NCAA football, which has been around, you know, some people say 150 years. I think we'll come up on 150 years in, uh, <laughs> in frankly, uh, two or three years, mm-hmm. um, because the 150th year celebration that was celebrated in 2019 was actually for the first intercollegiate football match of any kind, which was 1869. Uh, however, soccer allowed the use of the hands until 1869, first off. But more importantly, the rules that Rutgers and Princeton played were association rules. It wasn't until McGill played uh, Harvard that we see the proliferation of the game that then becomes the American gridiron. So, uh, you know, but for that, people forget that part of the camaraderie, part of the family, part of the community that exists in the U.S., in terms of supporting specifically university teams, college teams, is that people actually do have an authentic shared identity with the players. Whether you're student, you know, undergraduate, postgraduate, faculty, staff, alumni, uh, someone in the community, um, that last one being more important um, in the smaller university towns than it is in major cities. But arguably, I was at USC um, before, well, in between the years when the Rams and the Raiders left, and then the uh, Rams and the Chargers returned. And I can use that word because <laughs> the Chargers did play their first year in 1960 mm. in Los Angeles before yeah. going to San Diego. Um, so USC was, in many ways, Los Angeles's professional football team. People had an authentic connection to it, which you know, we can talk about the concept of a draft. I would argue that despite the fact that there is a lack of community in professional let's say the NFL, when compared to the NCAA, or even when compared to um, the contemporary NRL, um, it actually has a backbone of community because nobody cares if, you know, you came from the same town or the same city, but if you went to the same university, people are very excited around the draft to have somebody from their school picked up by a fill-the-blank team. And if you, that, that's a, there's a big reason why in the NFL, people say their name, the players, along with the university they went to. Yeah, there's a big value in understanding where this person came from as far as a university is concerned, um, which doesn't exist here. And it's a a big bone to pick I have with the concept that the draft solves all problems. 
Um, yeah, I mean, it, it seems like it, it needs a complete structural rechange. You, you can't just implement a draft and think that's going to fix everything. It, it needs like a, a deep, deeper structural um, change. Yeah, I think I can safely say without burning any bridges um, that if you compare, let's just say, the AFL draft to the NFL draft, it, it's not even apples to oranges. It's more rocks and artichokes, if anything. Um, the, the Because the underlying nature of how these students are being drafted is entirely different from somebody coming out of uh, coming out of high school. There's a fervent feeling of attachment and uh, and greater community when it comes out of the university than if somebody's picked up from a high school on the other side of Melbourne, let's just say. Yeah. Um, and it sounds like he may may or may not be a great prospect, um, but the issue uh, still remains in that capacity that. At 18 years old, it's much harder to tell than it is for somebody who gets picked up at 21 or 23. Um, the NCAA, but for the payers being paid, is a professional league when you look at the amount of money it generates. Um, but that money that it generates, again, there are many, many more teams. It's not earning uh, in, in parity with the NFL if you compare team numbers. But if you even look at the sheer raw dollar amount, that's because of community. That's because people have that association. Um, and I don't think that necessarily looking to the U.S. always is the right option. I actually would say that a lot of the paradigms that work in the U.S. work because the U.S. is the only industrialized nation that has at-will employment. And for those not familiar uh, with the legal term or haven't been to law school, that means that somebody can be fired without good cause in all states but for Montana, which creates a very hyper-competitive mindset. Um, where somebody can be fired literally at any given time. Now, there are players unions for different sports, and it would be naive to think that they're all created equal. They're not. Certain unions are much stronger for the players than other ones. Um, but the de facto setting for Americans at large is one of greater employ employment precarity than anybody else in the industrial, post-industrial world. Which is interesting in terms of a, a super league context because this is a time we've just had the the draft court case earlier in the 90s but in in many ways industrial relations in rug, in a rugby league context was was quite primitive and the the players had very little you know pulling power and it took something like super league for a lot of players to realize that actually hang on if we get together we do have a lot more power. And looking just before the Super League War, the, the baseball strike in America actually was quite influential on thinking. Obviously, it went a different way in terms of the Super League War. But I I, I don't know. I'm, I'm interested to get your thoughts on that question of industrial relations and the fact that in, in the US, they are willing to sacrifice in all these areas, like for the players' unions to agree to things like drafts and salary caps and things that, you know, are, are restraints of trade. They'll accept those, but then there'll, there'll also be these lockouts. And it seems that any CBA is, if, if there's not a lockout or a strike, there's a very long and very tense negotiation process to actually, you know, get the game continuing for the following year. Can you speak a bit about that? Absolutely. Um, I think there's the counter argument, and then I'll step onto the, uh, the, the, uh, the milk crate that you asked me to. I think there's an argument to also say, though, that the greatest amount of value that can be generated 
And I'm not saying that it's at parity between players, owners, um, and the league itself or any other um, party of interest. But there is a huge value in keeping the wheels turning. Uh, to make a uh, overly simplistic analogy, the most amount of petrol that you're going to burn is when your car is at a standstill to get it moving again. And one of the arguments is that the players associations may believe also that it is in the best interest of the players to keep the wheels turning, to prevent them from rusting, if you would. Um, because one of the big issues there is uh, if you pull everything to a standstill, I mean, that is literally the nuclear option. And there's you know questionable benefit as to whether or not this works. Now, um, there's also the marketing perspective that uh, they always say when times get hard, what should you do? And they always say, put your money in marketing and advertising because as your competitors decide to tighten their belt, that means they're not in front of their customers and potential clients, whereas you are, which means when things rebound, as all economies do eventually at some point, you are there fresh in their minds, whereas your competitors have gone away. Now, between football and baseball, the seasons don't really overlap, but for the, um, the MLB postseason with the beginning of the NFL. But the sports are uniquely different enough to say two different types of fans for a few months. They're happy to watch both if they like both sports. Um, but I do think that there is a value and there is a logic to keeping things going. I don't think things have to go nuclear necessarily if you have smart leadership on both sides. And I don't know that that's, I know for a fact that that will not always be the case. You can get very petty people <laughs> in positions of power. It's just how it works. But um, getting to the Super League itself, specifically here in Australia, well, one of the big things that people don't think about is that salaries went up about sometimes three times their original amount as a result of the Super League war. And one of the things that this led to was actually the scrapping of the contested scrum because you now have, forward, have forwards that were on three times the salary they previously were, and there was a desire to avoid losing them. And that's one of the key components in the uh, gentleman's agreement not to contest the scrum. I don't think there was an idea to abolish it forever, but you know, it's kind of like anything else. Any temporary tax becomes per permanent, you know, for better or for worse. Um, culture eats strategy for, for breakfast. Um, there were impacts, not just financially in Australia, but in terms of the way the game is played as a result of the Super League war. Now, obviously over in England, there's still no players union post-Super League. So that's a completely different result, even though there was still a Super League transition. I don't know if you'd call it as much of a war in comparison to what happened to here in, in Australia. Yeah, well, I mean, there, there wasn't a war because there was, you know, no rival group willing to you know, match the 85 million pounds. So it, it was a lot easier to, it was a lot easier to sort everything out over there. For both sides to fight, so to speak, or fight mm. well. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, there, people do get conquered. So would you, how would you call it? A Super League conquering? Yeah, that, that's probably the, the most accurate way of depicting it. And mind you, this is, this is happening when 16-year-old Spencer was just watching his first rugby league match at 11 p.m. on a Thursday. So my perspective on that uh, now is, you know, not exactly in alignment from the, you know, fresh-faced, naive 16-year-old uh, who just saw a fantastic sport that he loved to watch. Yeah, well, it's interesting for me, even though I was, you know, keenly aware of the war at the time. It, it's funny when I'm doing the research now and, and 
plotting out particular moments in this, you know, two or three year period where I can remember a specific game or, uh, you know, something that was happening. But my context then was entirely, you know, whether my team was was going to win that match or what happened. You know, th- these bigger issues didn't really come into play. So I, th- I think there's a lot that passes you by if you're not looking specifically for it. Of course. I mean, I think we're very similarly different in that respect. I didn't have the luxury, actually, of, quote unquote, having a team that I could see every week because they would show a different game. So I would start, you know, following, let's, you know, in particular, um, you know, once the Super League war here came to a close and there was a merger and I, the teams that I happened to have seen were South Sydney and uh, Meldrin. So and those were the first ones that I saw, you know, for down here. So it just kept on. Uh, whenever they were on, I would follow them, but I didn't have that luxury of quote unquote, just having that team that I would watch every single week because mm-hmm. it just was not a provided product for me. I had to just love the game to watch the game. Um, it's uh, in in many ways I missed out, but in other ways it, it was a very and is a very unique opportunity um, to just watch it for the sake of sport, to, for the sake of good competition. Because I always I always got a highlight game. Mm. Of, of the of the best game of the week i never i never had to watch a bad game <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's uh i mean let's just face it even if we're supporting a specific team uh and our you know whoever we support you know blows the other team out of the water it can get boring if it's just that much of a uh, of a decimation i remember there was a uh, a usc game years ago and i believe we're playing hawaii and we beat them i think 70 to something nil or next to nil and at a certain point in the game, it only became exciting again if we had actually set a new school record, yeah. <laughs> which we didn't. Um, and again, these were the games where uh, these were the days when USC was, in many ways, again LA's NFL team because there was no NFL team. They had been gone for seven, eight years, nine years at that point. Um, but they, they they were fun days, I'll tell you that. But the, but at that point, you know, getting to the point. Right. I I never really had to watch a bad game of rugby league because yeah. of the self not self imposed but because of the imposed limitations of where I lived. I never got to watch a team consistently every week, but I got to see a great game every week. I, I think there's something to that, and from my perspective here, probably you know ten or fifteen years ago, I, I started getting really into NFL, but I, I never found a team to go for because I was always just seeking the best game. So whether that was, you know, the Steelers versus the Patriots or, you know, the Saints were playing the Packers, whatever it might have, whatever the the good rivalry was for that year, I was invested in that. But then the following year, I just wanted to see that all over again, whoever the the best teams were. I find it really hard to find a team to go for where you don't have that personal connection and that history. Yeah, no, I can understand that as well. I'm sure the NFL would be happy, but the teams would be upset. (laughs) Because it it shifts the uh, direct revenue stream uh, to the actual uh, governing body, um, which then would be paying certain amounts out based on pre-agreed contracts to the teams instead of you just handing your money over uh, to buy a fill-in-the-blank team's hat. Mm. (laughs) But let's face it, who who walks around with with only the logo of the league? On the yeah. <laughs> and the answer is still nobody, but it's, yeah. it, it's, it's something that I, I have thought about. I wouldn't say considerably, um, but enough to say we have so many people across the world that follow a sports league and mm. not just a sports team as a result of situations not too dissimilar to yours and mine. Um, but you still don't see people repping the, uh, 
the badge of any particular league per se uh, without an accompanying uh, an accompanying team. Yeah, and and I, I guess in a rugby league context, the the Super League war was maybe the exception to that, where you could proudly wear your ARL hat to show which side you stood on. Um, I wanted to ask you. I, I want to get your personal perspective as an American, but also whether any of this has come to light over the course of your research. But when you think about the Super League war in Australia and the Americanization aspect of that, it was coming at this particular point in time where anti-Americanization was a very big talking point culturally. I've, I mentioned it on our show before, but there was a you know funk early Aussie hip hop style song called Australia Don't Become America. And you know that that went into the all, all the you know the McDonald's and all these kind of cultural touch points that became a real source of of tension and and resistance among some Australians and in rugby league this was magnified anytime there was anything that went outside the norm of the stereotype of a pie on the hill watching the game it was american american style entertainment being ram down our throats and i feel a lot of that has gone away now both in a cultural sense and specifically rugby league like i think it's analogous to halloween which there's been a tipping point in the last couple of years where now it's just ready readily known and accepted that kids will trick or treat and you know dress up for halloween and decorate the house whereas even five years ago if you were doing that there was something like you know it was looked down upon so i i think there has been a cultural tipping point and you are seeing more of that inserted into rugby league without any resistance so i I just want to get your perspective and and whether you've noticed that and uh any anything you may have found over the course of your research yeah it's it's, to be fair i I think uh that again what you had to say is absolutely spot on there i don't think anti-americanization is unique to anything, especially post fall of the Berlin Wall. There is good reason to argue that a bipolar world, meaning a US-Soviet world, provided exponentially more um, allegiance, whether you agreed with either the US or the Soviet Union as part of NATO or the Warsaw Pact. But once the Berlin Wall fell and then subsequently the Soviet Union Everybody who was under those greater umbrellas also had the greater opportunity to say, well, hey, you know, I actually don't like that that much because there was no more perceived threat post-Cold War. Um, so I don't think it's unique to rugby league. I think it's a global phenomenon that occurred um, when the Cold War officially stopped. Um, you no longer have to toe the American party line, um, for better, for worse. Uh, Australia has essentially fought in every single war that America has fought in since inception. And it's not to say that this will continue or stop, but in a post-Cold War uh, global society, um, there's more dialogue around, well, why are we doing this? What is the direct benefit to Australians in doing so? Uh, Whereas you could theoretically have talked about it prior to the end of the Cold War, but it wasn't going to be enough to assuage the fears of some, uh, you know, so you know, use Kennedy terminology and McNamara, you know, the domino effect. Um, So I think that in terms of rugby league, we can reflect 
in a very good control group as to how that shift changed and shifted over time. Uh, but I also think a result of this is to the counterpoint, even a group like McDonald's that you brought up that came into Australia with its you know, tentacles, so to speak. Well, I'd probably say that there's been a complete shift that's also reflective of the post-Cold War and extended post-Cold War mentality. Uh, there's been an ad going on for, I don't know, maybe a month ago or so, could still be going, where McDonald's talks about coming into McDonald's. And it's a very catchy line. And I'm sure the writers must have been well paid because I still remember it, uh, which is that we came here as McDonald's, but you made us Maccas. Mm. And that sort of mentality of, yeah, we're here. We do have our identity as an American brand, but McDonald's in Australia is uniquely Australian. You know, a nod to the McCafe that came out of Australia as well. Um, so I think the, the mindset from the Super League era when compared to today is quite different in how American businesses and American soft power, uh, well, frankly, attempt and whether successful or not, uh, try to ingratiate themselves to the greater world. Yeah, well, that makes sense. So the rugby league just gets bound up with the rest of it and, and we're more accepting of it. Yeah, in, in many ways, yes, um, because uh, there's, there's greater politics that go on. There's greater uh, soft power um, influences and hard power influences that do dictate the prism in which we all see the world. I mean, I'm not going to make this into a philosophical discourse, um, but we're, we are all speaking through the lens of our own zeitgeist. And we don't actually control that, um, which is why it's great to look at things like rugby league and specifics as control groups in which we can reflect and better understand where we are, where, when, who, what we are uh, in time and space in the universe, if you would. And rugby league in this case with the Super League War is a really eloquent, actually, an articulate way of explaining this transition away from these more traditional models. Though I argued in my Tom Brock that the Americanization began long before the Super League War. Um, the most clear-cut one is limited tackles. And I'd argue that four tackles was miscounted because four downs is an actual four play the balls, whereas four tackles is three, uh, a la Canadian gridiron. Um, and one could argue when they brought in the three-tackle rule, and this is not fact, this is just... Uh, a belief I have based on reading a lot of evidence from the era that there's a possibility that the three strikes being three full attempts in baseball and you're out um, because it wasn't always three strikes and four balls. It was a shifting number of strikes and balls for a long time, but that the cementing of three strikes was a reflection possibly of three downs. Um, I, I don't know that for a fact, but I do know for a fact that the play the ball in pre-split rugby was abolished in 1878, but that the American and Canadian gridiron games held on to the play the ball. We played the ball with the foot too when we mm. snapped it. And then it evolved to rolling it with the hand. And there's really interesting text about how certain centers were so adept at rolling the ball, they would do it end over end and get it to hop up into the quarterback's hands. All, you know, More similar, not the hopping part, but rolling the ball as opposed to playing the ball off the foot, which is very similar to today's Super League. Um, there's, there's all of these things that show parallel. Now, correlation doesn't equal causation. I can't tell you that in 1906, rugby league, after 10 years of being the Northern Union, decided to look towards the U.S. and Canada 
and say, oh, they're still doing the thing that we abandoned 28 years ago. Um, but it's interesting to note that there is a level of even minutia in popular sport journalism that even talked about the different style of rowing techniques in the US when compared to England in those days. So though there's no smoking gun, there's all the reason to believe that there is a reasonable possibility that these influence were, influences were crossing the Atlantic. It's, uh, again, and we have to think about through the lens of its time, that this was the era called the Great Reproachment, where the empire uh, was diminishing in power, and there was an attempt to actually create a greater English-speaking de facto empire by cozying back up with the U.S., which had only been broken off, let's just use easy dates, 1776 to the 1890s. I mean, in our lifetimes, that's a long time. In anybody's lifetimes, that's a long time. But it's the anti-English sentiment in America and the distrust of the crown was still there. Yet England decided to take a more active approach in assuaging these concerns to still maintain some form of empire, even if it's not one that's all under the empire or today's commonwealth. Um, and these are, things, these are things that are taking place. It's not that these people didn't talk with each other. Or they had to wait for a transatlantic cable um, for one piece of information that was hyper-specific. There was still popular sport journalism, and it was crossing sides. Coaches from England, coaches from Australia, players were going to the U.S. to become coaches because professionalism was just not the done thing. I mean, you never tell Yo-Yo Ma or Yitzhak Perlman that, you know, because you're a musician, you, you're not entitled to earn money. But because of the whole professionalism, amateurism, social class control divide that existed in England and the English Empire, um, people were coming to the U.S. So there was a very large sharing of information coming abroad. I mean, the only Australian in the American Football Hall of Fame, his name's Pat O'Day, and he was from Kilmore, which for those that aren't, haven't heard of Kilmore, you'll be forgiven, is a um, you know, short drive north uh, from Melbourne. Um, and he played and was in his latter two or four years the captain of the University of Wisconsin. He actually still has the longest drop goal on record for 62 yards and the longest punt at 110 yards because the field was longer back then. Mm. Um, and that, those, those stats aren't changing because the ball's pointier now and the field is shorter uh, for that matter. But to assume that Americanization just happened, starting with Bill Fallifield and his hatred towards the pay, play of the ball in the 1950s, and eventually, you know, he wanted to unionize. And I don't mean workers union. I'm talking about rugby union. He wanted to bring in a on the ground ruck style a la rugby union. And there's a great quote, which I'll, I'll butcher, but paraphrase saying, if the people who created the play of the ball ever could have imagined the monotony it would cause, you know, in such tactics like tactics like the creeping barrage, um, they never would have created it. Uh, the late Duke of Edinburgh, uh, again, paraphrasing rather crudely, called it the most boringest game he had ever seen <laughs> because for a very long time, there was no turnover of the ball. Yeah. Um, so again, this concept of Americanization, we, there are spikes when there are more study tours, more interests. It didn't start with Terry. It's not, first of all, it's not Jack Gibson. Terry Fernley got Jack Gibson onto Vince Lombardi's second effort. And it didn't start with them going to the U.S. Lombardi had already passed away then. And it didn't start with them touring the 49ers facility, which they fortuitously ran into, um, forget the gentleman's name, but somebody who gave them carte blanche access to the 49ers uh, training facilities. Um, there are all of these things that just continue to be in these little spikes where when we need a form of innovation, we look to something that we view as being novel 
innovative, successful, but I would call it even something different. And I use this to describe Pat O'Day in uh, the PhD research. Um, he was a form of safe exoticism. He, you know, still, still a white guy who spoke English, albeit Catholic in the U.S., and that used to be a big deal. Um, but at the same time, uh, he was novel enough. He had this funny accent. He played a sport which nobody heard of, which everybody still calls rugby for, <laughs> for the most part in the U.S. Um, when referring to Aussie rules. Um, that was even true of Edward Kaji Greaves, who is the first Brownlow medal winner that when he went over in the 1920s to coach and ended up playing for USC, actually, that he was referred to in the local papers as an Australian rugby player. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so America is a form of safe exoticism and innovation in the same way Americans view uh, still today, and I would argue back then as well, uh, Australians and Australia as a, also a form of safe exoticism, that there are ideas that can be still learned, um, but they're not too different. And I think that's partially a lie. I mean, the big lie, like I said earlier, is employment law. A lot of the things that we see as generating huge revenues and great successes in the U.S. are simply not possible here because there's a trade-off, which is, frankly, precarity in people's lives of employment that exists in the U.S. but nowhere else in the post-industrial world. Um, so I think that you know English sometimes uh, is more of a veneer and a uh, distraction in a lot of ways away from the true underlying um, cultural values that are not in alignment. Um, and it's nice to say, well, the, the draft works fantastically in the U.S., um, so therefore we should do it here. But again, I believe that's, that's very reductionist. I, something that like, really struck me while you were talking, you mentioned things like ideas and innovation. In a rugby league sense, it seems that it's no coincidence that the 1970s, a time where Australian rugby league was really making great strides, English rugby league was starting to go backwards. You had the gulf widening between the two national teams as well as the two domestic leagues. It seems like no coincidence then that it's the 1970s where Australia starts looking more and more to NFL coaches and, yeah, Fernley, Gibson. Suddenly... We're making these annual trips to NFL facilities and increasingly looking for ideas and ways to get ahead from there as opposed to turning to England. I think that's a very astute observation. I would also say that with empathy because obviously rugby league in England and in the entirety of the UK also has the additional hurdle of um, a form of socioeconomic um, segregation, mm. which rugby league has exponentially less, not not at all, it is still there, but less in Australia, where rugby league is now, at least, uh, the dominant, clearly the dominant of the domestically played codes between rugby union and rugby league. Um, rugby league has been competing against rugby union and a massive, massive um, soccer competition, amongst other sports too, uh, in a very, albeit larger population, but in a cultural market where the English accent changes every 26 miles and everybody's local team is still going by suburb names. And again, Tony Collins has discussed this uh, in many ways um, to death because he's done such a great job. Um, but 
what most people don't realize is that in the UK, um, there that is a real hard barrier to overcome. Whereas the fair dinkum, fair dinkum Australian attitude is something that's more in line conceptually, at least with rugby league. Um, that's not necessarily the case everywhere. Uh, it's it's an argument that gets thrown around today in terms of expansion of rugby league uh, today in the English competition. You know, is it worth you know flogging all these efforts at London or even Dublin? Um, you know, over in um, in Ireland um, that has a fantastic GAA with um, amateur participation, but again, professional level crowds um, for the hurling for the football for rugby union, uh, separate from the uh, aforementioned two. Um, but it's it, because rugby league over there does have a northern stigma in this case. And in this case, it, again, it is not a positive one that everybody aligns with. And it's not just, again, it's not just the M62. There are pockets along the M62 where soccer is the game. It's not rugby yeah. league, even though in one suburb over, they, uh, people swear by rugby league and would never watch the round ball sport. Um, that sort of fragmentation and factionalization just doesn't exist here. So I think that saying that the switch by the Australian rugby league coaches and culturally to look towards the U.S. as a new place for innovation instead of to the proverbial motherland um, is part of the equation. But I do think that despite a larger population or potential population and potential eyeballs in the U.K., that the cultural and the competition uh, levels for those eyeballs is a very, very, very much more difficult hurdle in many ways over there than it is here. Um, it's one of the good arguments to say, why not America? Why not Canada? Um, we don't really care. <laughs> we just want to win. <laughs> we, we don't even care if you came from our country, um, if you were born in America. We want to, you know, you can call it representative democracy. You know, we don't care who's, you know, father, son, you know, whatever role it is. We just want to win. And if we're winning in a competition with our local club team against established club teams that call themselves rugby, we don't care if it's union or league. Some people do. But, you know, for the most part, if you create a great product, you know, they're going to show up because people want to win. Mm. We love to win. <laughs> <laughs> uh, going back to the the on-field stuff and and evolution of the game and how rules change can you see anything tangible in terms of all those trips to to american facilities in the 70s and the influence of gridiron on the actual on-field product say you know from the 70s through to the 90s absolutely and i'll give you the most visual one you remember those big clunky uh, scrum caps and those huge shoulder pads mm. they came in yeah and they left yeah but that also happened in rugby union when they professionalized in 95. I'm not saying the pads got bigger, but the blokes really, and this is shared between union uh, of the of 90, post-95 and league in the 70s, guys really started to bulk up then because of uh, greater exposure to the American weight training regimen. Now, again, each code is actually a physical, imagine it as a physical mold that will shape the human body because whether you call it the rules or the laws of the game, those dictate the type of body shape that you need in order to be most successful in that sport. And I think that a good example of this quick Americanization and then turnaround or you know finding balance maybe, I don't think it's a full retreat. I think it is about um, uh, finding the most effective way to do things is you do see these guys wearing bigger pads 
bigger, you know, thicker scrum caps. You do see guys getting bigger and bulking up, but the reality is in the 70s, you're not looking at a 10 meter retreat. So that was more possible because the cardio output wasn't required. Um, but you know, you, you throw in not just a five meter retreat, you throw in a big five, which is what it was referred to as leading up to yep. the mid season 93 um, change to 10. That's, that's a much bigger output. So you, you take what you can, you bring in what's new and fresh and you, you have a crack at it because the data shows from across the ocean that it's really successful. And then the mold changes. And the way the mold changes also changes the physiology of the rugby player's body. I mean, look at the shape of the forward pack in rugby league pre and post contested scrum. Now there's, there's no line out in rugby league. So there's no need to have guys that are particularly tall in the, um, using rugby union terms, uh, the lock position or the second row position in rugby league terms, that's not a valued um, physical attribute. It, it, it doesn't move the needle in league. So when the scrum got scrapped, the impact to the physiology of the forwards was exponentially more noticeable because there was nothing else to really focus on. Instead, the focus went to the big guys being able to run even better hit-ups because there's no more contested scrum. Uh, and that is a really good example of how the rule changes, the impact, the learnings um, do change the game. Not just the rules of the game, but the physical body shape of the players as well. And I, I guess that kind of ties in with what you were saying about the, the scrums earlier. But can you just expand upon that a bit? Um, in the Super League era, you mentioned the the financial influence that the that, um, you know, took place to reduce scrums. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the shortest version I can give is that clubs were paying players three times the amount. And the chance of injury in a scrum it was seen as unacceptable at those costs that were already sunk costs into the player. And so they said, we're just not going to contest it. Now, the result of that is people would assume is antithetical to what happened in the American and Canadian gridiron of the 1880s when we stopped contesting the play of the ball, the snap. And that's because we have blockers. But for there being blockers, there would not be a requirement for guys to be so big and have to anchor down. So again, you're playing, we were all playing, you know, a form of Jenga, if you would, that, you know, you, you move one piece, you know, you don't want to topple the tower, but it shifts the whole point of where, uh, the emphasis and where the weight is heading to keep the tower standing. And uh, I'm, I'm blanking on his name, but the original biographer for Walter Camp, and for those who aren't familiar with Walter Camp, he is considered to be the, uh, I wouldn't call him the exclusive, you know, godfather or forefather uh, in shaping American football, but was definitely the one of the main guys, at least publicly, and to a degree, noticeable degree. I don't want to denigrate what he actually did in any way. Um, although I think he gets <laughs> a lot of credit where other people did work. Um, the biographer for Walter Camp in the opening of his book, and I think it was 1926 or so, uh, he said essentially that if you watched a game of baseball from when Walter Camp played back in the 1870s or so, you would still be able to watch the game and you'd understand it roughly. There are a few things that changed. Um, but if you watched a game of football, from 1926, and you even look back to Camp State, even the 1880s, 1890s, you, you couldn't even recognize it really as the same game, because for some reason football codes, and I, you know, but for soccer, and because soccer doesn't have the 
uh, additional, how should I say, the additional challenge of what to do when the ball is in physical possession of somebody. It's always being turned over. Um, football codes tend to change their laws exponentially more quickly. We have to be more reactive because coaches are smart and players are smart. They find the, um, how should I say this, the most dull, safest form of the game to win. <laughs> yeah. And um, Bill Fallafield as well, uh, the RFL secretary, um, essentially said, look, it's not the job of coaches or even fans to demand an interesting game. They just want to see their team win. So it's the job of administration to actually tweak those laws of the game, to tweak those rules, to ensure that the style of play that we all enjoy remains. And I would define that as a wide open played game of football, regardless of what kind of football you enjoy watching. Nobody likes to watch games that are completely tightly physically packed. Um, the idea of, of expansive play is attractive to everybody across every football code. And I'd even include the ones that are still only played at the uh, elite public schools in England, such as the Eton rules and Harrow rules um, games. So again, don't don't follow me too far. I don't want to discuss the Eaton Wall game versus the Eaton Fields <laughs> game, but because uh, again, you're playing against a wall in the Wall game. But th there are certain universal truths in what makes for an interesting game of football to watch as a spectator, as a consumer, as opposed to a participant. Because we all enjoy playing a sport when we're playing it. But again, back to your original original question, that's the difference between playing sport to play sport and what we've evolved into. Um, for the purposes of consumerism, partially in entertainment, which is sport entertainment. And, and I think that's really interesting in the context of the scrums because you had this period in the 1980s where th there were very low scores. And so, so scrums were already being in the process of phasing out by the time Super League came around. The interesting counterpoint to me is the idea of unlimited interchange, which was in many ways in many ways brought in for that same reason. Like suddenly players were getting paid more. They had to do something about injuries. It was viewed that unlimited interchange would have a positive effect on that. But what it did was to change the game so fundamentally that it it was just very distasteful to rugby league fans, players, coaches, and it didn't last. Um but it's something that works in an American context. So have you looked into that side of things and what the thinking was and why it didn't work? Yeah, that's a really great point, actually. So unlimited interchange is, first of all, let me say one thing to cap the scrum thing, and then I'll get to the interchange. I don't think we should scrap the scrum. I don't think we should reduce its prevalence in the game. I do think that scrums are important even when the ball goes into touch. Because what the scrum does, not just gives the players a break, because this is what comes in with eventually with unlimited interchange, um, is not only does it give the players a break per se, but it truly rewards the team feeding the ball into the scrum by providing a much porous defensive line. Now, a coach could tell their, his team, you know, let's just, uh, let's just get the ball out and run a hit up. That's a very, very safe way to play the ball. You know, get it to the first receiver, run a hit up. However, that's not to say that there isn't immense value in the porous nature of that line. And that huge advantages can be taken from Scrum as a result of it being packed. Now, I'm glad that the differential penalty is gone because it should be fully penalized now, in my opinion. 
because we want guys to stay in the scrum the whole time to allow for the fullest advantage to the scrum feeding side. Now, to the other side of it, it gives the guys a little bit of a break. We've defined it as, you know, we can change it to 30 seconds, we can make it a minute, we can do, we can do whatever we want, you know, to adjust that and tweak. You know, there's no reason to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, but with respect specifically now to unlimited interchanges, the assumption was wrong. Just like the assumption that wearing a big helmet or a thicker scrum cap is wrong about protecting the brain. It's counterintuitive. When you, the brain doesn't feel anything. It has, it, it has no nerve endings. The only way that your brain gets any indication that it itself is in danger is by your pain receptors outside of your head. So if you take a clump to the head, that hurts your head, which encourages you not to go in head first, which then therefore protects your brain from smashing against the inside of your skull. And we know that by wearing a helmet and retarding the pain that your pain receptors feel uh, externally, that there's a greater willingness to go in and do more dangerous tackles. Now, what does that have to do again with the unlimited interchange? Same thing. The concern was that players would be too tired and therefore get injured as a result of fatigue. And there is a point where that occurs. However, what I'd also say is, why didn't anybody consider the immense amount of damage that a fresh set of legs would have against a, not exhausted, but an already tired player that had already been on the field? Why does it work in American football and not in rugby league? Well, rugby league is an 80-minute game. You're playing both sides of the ball, and it's exponentially more cardiovascularly demanding over the long run. Why does it work, or is it at least accepted in American football? Is Well, again, you have the platoon system, which came about after World War II. All these American GIs, you know, American diggers, if you would, came back. There wasn't enough room. Long story short, people started playing on offense, defense, and special teams. There's enough time for people to catch their breath or to set the pace of the game through snapping the ball no more than 40 seconds from when the ball was ruled dead or 25 seconds in the Canadian version from when the ball is placed by the referee. So what you do is everybody to a degree has a greater parity of freshness, so to speak, on the gridiron than you would have on a rugby league field. And that's why it's much more dangerous. The chance of getting you know, uh, Johnny or Janie fresh legs against somebody who's been out there um, is, is much greater. And the chance of injury from somebody who is already fatigued, again, not exhausted fatigue, but even relatively fatigued uh, against somebody with fresh legs, it, it's just, it spells disaster. And it's something that I, I think was brought in for the right reasons or with good intentions, but without any consideration or enough consideration on the the flow on effects and how that was going to affect the game as a whole. And I think this is something that we have seen before unlimited interchange and, you know, we, we keep seeing it. I mean, the last couple of seasons are a perfect example of that. And can you talk on that and what has to go in to rule changes or the evolution of a game to, to make positive changes without fundamentally altering the sport fundamentally sport will change it won't happen overnight <laughs> it's that's the nature of all football codes i think mm. we established however if we can accept that part of the narrative and the story arc of the game is small changes over time that do eventually lead to big changes that's okay so long as the goal 
and the gumption to actually have our changes succeed in the reasons they were implemented for are uh, maintained. If it's not, it's quite dangerous. Again, I agree with Bill Fallifield. It is the job of administration to maintain, to make the rule changes, to ensure that the game is uh, the game we enjoy watching from a spectator perspective. I think he's spot on. However, I think when something doesn't work, we have to be quicker to adjust. Now, I don't think it's fair to flog administration and just say, you did this in good faith and you screwed up and you should never make a rule change again. I think that's a bit much. But at the same time, I th you know we, you do have to realize this is Jenga. You're going to pull a block out of that tower and you think it's going to have one effect and it may actually topple the tower. That, that's the truth now. And that's an extreme example. Um, however, I do think that there are ways of doing more comprehensive study into this. Uh, Tony Collins, I've quoted him multiple times now, but he talks about all of the innovations that came out of rugby league, actually, that rugby union then copied. Rugby union being a different game and a different code and having its own uniqueness, still looked to rugby league because it was still similar enough for certain innovations, whether it was you know numbers instead of letters on, on the jerseys. Uh, there, there's, there's a list. And Tony's, I don't want to spoil it because anybody can look up Tony's podcast and uh, get a good taste of some of the things that uh, rugby union learns from rugby league. However, I don't feel that there's necessarily um, as much of an opportunity to test rule changes in rugby league that we are our own petri dish in many ways uh, to do our own tests. And sometimes it's, you know, it works very well that way because you make a decision and it's great. It happens right away. You know, that, that's essentially uh, the benevolent dictator concept of government. You know, one person makes the rules and if they make a change, it's instant. And if it's great, well, it's great. Um, but that's not always the case. And I, there's no reason why we can't have a bit more testing before these things go into effect. Um, I think with the six again rules, there are other codes that actually do ha have a six again um, that have been going on with a six again, uh, you know, for quite some time. Uh, I did some heavy digging actually um, because I uh, tend to referee <laughs> a bit of rugby league, but a bit of TRL, touch rugby league. And when Wayne Bennett um, first experimented with the uh, six again rule, it was the indigenous all-star side that he was coaching back in 2011. And that's when TRL also picked up about then the six again rule. However, there are rules around the six again rule in the TRL format that would be very helpful in mitigating the issues that we've seen in terms of cardio, in terms of blowouts, in terms of all these other things that we've seen in the NRL subsequently in the last two years, mainly last year with the expanded nature of it. And I don't think that we necessarily have to scrap the six again rule where we need an extra ref or maybe we do need extra. Ref, but I think there are very simple things that we can do to clean it up, to maintain, again, for the purpose of sport entertainment, better parity between the clubs. Can you expand on that? <laughs> okay. No, if it's, I don't want to. I actually don't mind. Uh, frankly, I am going to write about it um, a bit more. But a good example is when you break down the numbers uh, and look at the number of six again penalties that are called as you know, a result of an offsides. And let's break down, there's two different types of uh, offsides. There is the player retreating from the ruck, and then there are the players that are already back 10 that jump the line early. And the more prevalent of the two right now, because I do feel 
uh, for the sake of not blowing the whistle too much, there is an underblowing of the whistle of those that are back 10 and jumping the line early. That's just my personal opinion. Happy to be wrong, especially when it's in my best interest, of course. Um, but when we're looking at the other form where the player that was in the ruck or in the tackle uh, that's leaving and retreating and not remaining as a marker, um, that's actually quite prevalent. That's, that, that's quite notable. And one of the ways in which TRL deals with this issue uh, is it's called shadowing. So if you make the touch and you, you back up eight meters in TRL, and you can back up to that eight meter line in any direction you want. Obviously, the, the most linear way is to go straight back. However, you don't have to. So long as you hold your angle or stay out of play, you can continue to retreat in that angle without any issue. However, if the person, you know, let's call it the acting dummy half, then decides to run directly into you, well, that's not an offsides because they had every fair warning by you making your retreat in a, let's say, 45 degree diagonal line. They had every fair indication that you had to stay out of, that they had to stay out of your way. And that, and therefore it's not an offsides. So you've been given warning as the act, uh, acting dummy half that if you want to try to milk that penalty, it ain't going to work. That's a very simple way of getting rid of all these offsides and giving another six again and another six again, another six again. Uh, conversely, we do have to also address the concept of six again when we're in the yard segment of the field, because you're only going to be on tackle one or two. And it's not right. I mean, most people aren't aware of this, but the, the term professional foul comes from the fact that the amateurs, the wealthy, decided that anybody who spoiled the play in order to uh, gain an upper hand, had to have been poor because, or they had to have been a professional. They had to have been a played, a paid player. <laughs> Therefore, it's yeah. a professional foul. Um, but I would argue that in many ways, the concept of intentionally drawing a penalty, knowing it's going to be a six again in the yardage segment of the field, and knowing that it won't provide a meaningful uh, penalty to the aggrieved side, is a form of professional foul. Um, and again, how we there, there's many ways, and this this is a much longer conversation. But how we implement uh, solving that problem uh, that's more secret sauce. Uh, but <laughs> yes. um, but that that's a completely separate issue. There, I, again, I'm I think rugby league does have an obsession with the concept of speed up the game, speed up the game, speed up the game. Which, frankly, the speed of a game is a matter of perception. Do you define it by uninterrupted movement on the field? Do you uh, define it as the frequency of Rule change, uh, not rule change, <laughs> excuse me, the, the frequency of uh, score changes. Do you define it by the frequency of the ball being turned over? There, there are lots of ways we measure speed. And I do think the uh, it's almost become uh, a cliche to speed up the game in rugby league. But that notwithstanding, there's ways where the six again rule can be still highly effective and not destroy the closer parity in which teams had in previous years. I don't know how that will be addressed um, in the future. It seems that the concept of a rules committee is not really a thing right now. Um, but, you know, they know where to call me. <laughs> and again, this is not me just speaking as a PhD uh, researcher, but also, you know, just professional time uh, around these things as well. So um, I, I do think that, you know, the, the, the six again is, is it's been around. It's not new. It's been around since 2011. Let's be real. Um, it's just not been part of the N the NRL mm. until two years ago. Um, there was ample time to look at the potential pitfalls. It just didn't happen. 
uh, under two administrations. And I'm not saying it's necessarily the CEO's role to be the expert on the rule changes, but there was enough time for two administrations to implement enough research into the potential hazards of this sort of rule change. So again, I don't I don't know whose job that was, and I'm not here to judge anybody. Um, but there there was time. It's it's been a decade. Yeah. It- so I've just recently re-listened to an old episode we did that went into the start of limited tackle football in Australia, which was basically a situation where in the Rugby League news of January 1967, the rule change was talked about and there was like a little offhand note saying, you know, oh, they might bring it in for the preseason cup next month. Next month, they bring it into the preseason cup and said, this seemed to work quite well there's a chance we might you know use it in the regular season and then a month later it is in you know it's that that's just it's a new game now and it it was just staggering to me that in a two-month period this profound change could occur could occur but it, it just seems that seems to be the way we get things done in rugby league for better and for worse I'd say that it's the way the world works pretty uh, profoundly. Compare, you know, this whole world's 18 months ago to today. Mm. Um, things happen in sweeping reforms. Um, and uh, there is a reality to say that, um, I think it was uh, Admiral uh, Grace, uh, Grace Hopper who said it's better to uh, ask forgiveness than to request permission. Again, butchering yeah. your quote, but that's the concept. Um, it, that is a part of our, our reality as a world. And, but I don't think it's I think, unfortunately, it's used as a uh, as a methodology to also not necessarily consult uh, better business practices, if you would, um, because once, you know, what do they say? Uh, possession is 90 percent of the law. Mm-hmm. Um, once it's there, it's there. Um, I don't think it has to be so uh, uniformly one or the other. And I think that there is a good way that we can do this in ironing out the wrinkles. Uh, so to speak, it's not. This is not a an endorsement or condemnation <laughs> of the of the uh, of what has happened, but a uh, a very hopeful, um, albeit pessimistically hopeful, uh, <laughs> uh, view that this can be set right quite easily. That is in the best interest of not just the uh, the teams, but also in terms of um, viewership and fan enjoyment. But what do I know? Let's. Let, let, everybody said that uh, TV revenues were going to go down, and I said, "Well, I'm not really quite sure of that." And then look at the NFL. Yeah. <laughs> Kaboom. <laughs> the, I, again, they only went down in what sense? None. Yeah. <laughs> Biggest contract ever. So, mm-hmm. uh, as Mike Tyson said, and I know I like throwing a lot of quotes, but I think quotes are great. Um, you know, everybody's got a strategy, or everybody's got a plan until uh, they get socked in the mouth. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, just to get us from Super League to now, I, I'm going to posit something that you are much better positioned than me to answer. So my my argument, or what I'm going to suggest, is that in terms of Super League, a lot of the rule changes with explicitly American influence, such as unlimited in- interchange, such as Super League, the uh, scoring team kicking off, these kind of like fell away very quickly. What remained was more in terms of the presentation. And then even 
stuff with with on-field ramifications such as video referees even though that is a rules it's an on-field thing it, it's very much part of the presentation of rugby league as well so to me it, it seems that that influence has been more in terms of cultural and presentation <clears throat> sorry <clears throat> than it is in in terms of actual gameplay or evolution of rules is that something you'd, you'd agree with and if not um you know can you provide a counter to that no, I think that's pretty spot on. I would point off, point off. I would point out that um, the scoring team kicking off was statistically insignificant in yep. changing the score of the game, and the reason for that is that it's six and out. It's not like the NFL or the uh, CFL where you get another set of four, another set of three, respectively, based on the code uh, for every ten yards minimum that you achieve. Um, I would say, however that the t- whichever team has fewer points being kicked to, kicked off to, that would have a sustan- substantial uh, impact. Uh, I do feel, I mean, I railed for years saying that mutual infringement is going to blow up in the most ugly, spectac- spectacularly ugly way. And, you know, we all remember that grand final. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but yeah, what people have to understand is that that was a great rule until the focus shifted away from having great field position to focusing more on ball possession as the rules changed over the years. And I'd argue that the belief that receiving the ball off the kickoff being a disadvantage because you are still the defending team, and, you know, according to you know, the verbiage, the laws of the game, and the way things are worded, you're still the defending team, even if you're in the possession of the ball, so long as you're within your own half of the field. Now, again, this seems all very strange and preposterous to today's game if you look at it in isolation, but it makes perfect sense in antiquity when, again, Field position was valued more than today over field, uh, over ball possession. You, you just have to look at rugby union to understand that, to say, who the heck kicks from within their own 20 in rugby league? Nobody. But everybody kicks the ball away uh, in rugby union within their own 22. Why? Because there's a greater chance of turning the ball over uh, based on the uh, your opposition handling the ball and having you know uh, an infringement in the ruck or some other problem or losing a line out. There's a greater chance at getting the ball back with better field position. Uh, because field position is more valued in rugby union than in rugby league. Um, so in that capacity, yeah, I do think we've changed a lot. And it would be worthwhile to not revisit the concept of the scoring team kicking, but whoever has fewer points being kicked to. It's not a disadvantage to be in the quote-unquote defending half of the field so long as you're possessing the ball. Mm. Um, I would argue that a rule like the 2040 rule, to bring it contemporary, it's, it's there for good reason. It, but you have to look at it this way. If you can get a 40-20, which gives you an additional 20 meters away from your own try line, and the reward is, you know, again, continued possession of the ball, but a 20-40 where you have 20 meters fewer than your 40-20 is still the same answer, the same reward, that's really not very great incentive. There has to be a better incentive to kick a 20-40, genuinely, in order to make it enticing. So, again, that's just basic economics. Why would you give the same reward for something that is at the cost of you kicking with exponentially less mm-hmm. uh, you know, field position? Now, I'm not saying that that's the right thing to do, but risk and reward. Well, kicking it from within your own 20 is a greater risk. Is your reward greater than a 40-20? No, it's the same. So with regards to the things that stayed and left in Super League, uh, the, from the Super League era, yeah, certain things did go 
um, because they were not appropriate. They were just these wonderfully sometimes misguided, sometimes accurate, but poorly executed. And sometimes, you know, they worked out. But the, the idea is that they there wasn't an understanding on how these things would work within the uniqueness of rugby league. It is not enough that we all snap slash play the ball and have limited tackles and downs. There are more differences. And I do actually applaud Super League for taking a crack at these things. But again, they did the thing that I said you probably shouldn't do. Not just implement something that you don't fully understand, but when it didn't work, they fully abandoned them. Mm. Um, I think, and that applied to teams as well. I mean, look at the Reds, look at Adelaide Rams. Uh, there are plenty of teams that uh, went the way of the Dodo. Instead of, uh, I don't think you have to double down, but to take a calculated risk and committing to um, the process that you set out to begin with. I mean, there's a reason why uh, in, in entrepreneurship, you at least wait to year five because year five is about when you're going to make it or break it. And if you can't sit that out to at least tweak your model, whether it's a rule change or whether it's a new team for at least five years in an already established ecosystem, then you shouldn't have done it to begin with. Because right now we're not even talking about entrepreneurship. We're talking about intrapreneurship, innovation within a pre-established organization. So minimally, you should be able to see it out and tinker with things over the course of five years. But that's just my feeling on it. Um, that's just, you know, what happens in business. It, I could be totally wrong. Maybe business is wrong. Business has been wrong. <laughs> um, but we are in the sports entertainment business. Um, and I would argue that that's probably not a bad idea to take in terms of uh, strategies. Mm. Well, you've started about a million different threads that we could break off on and, and keep going for hours, but we, we might uh, wrap it up there. But this this was really interesting for me, Spencer. So uh, I want to thank you so much for joining me. And I, I can't wait to, to read whatever form your you know research and your PhD takes. No, I appreciate that. Uh, I look forward to your... Uh... Your critical comments, thoughts, questions, and picking it to pieces because that's the only way it gets better. Yep. So everyone, uh, let us know your thoughts on this. I know there'll be some strong opinions on on what Spencer and I have discussed today. So uh, yeah, Spencer, thanks so much for joining me. No, not at all. And maybe next time we'll talk a little bit more about uh, the growth of rugby league in uh, in the U.S. and Canada. I, I hope we do in in a positive way. But uh, that that's for another day. And uh, for now, I'll speak to you later. Thank you. You take care. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.